Health Design Podcast. I'm your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Amy Willens, award-winning mental health advocate, peer support worker and author who lives and works in Edmonton, Canada. She's co-creator of Fighting Normal, a multidiscipline art installation that explores the stigma surrounding mental illness and a public speaker who uses her personal story of living with schizoaffective disorder to affect positive social change. Perhaps we could start with your personal story, because I know there's a very personal story that led to your interest in healthcare. I grew up in a fabulous family. Um, my dad was a doctor, my mom was a nurse. We sort of had every opportunity that we ever were searching for. And my passion lay in, in figure skating. And my mom and my dad did everything possible to, to help me pursue this dream. And I worked hard and I was driven and determined. And I loved to laugh and, and engage and talk politics and art. And I had a plan for my life. I had a map of how it was going to, how it would be. And everything was lining up. I was in university studying to be a nurse. I was in love with a very handsome quarterback. And I just earned a spot on the Canadian precision skating team. So this is 1996. I was 22 years old. And I was so incredibly excited. And so I got my Team Canada tracksuit and my international competition schedule. And we were busy training on and off the ice. When things began to shift, you know, I started to not be able to sleep. I didn't want to eat. I was convinced that I was being watched and followed. And I kept phoning the police to report the surveillance. I felt worthless and guilty. And I couldn't understand why anybody would love me. I wanted to end my life, not just to end my suffering, but because I believed that I was a burden on my family and friends. I heard whispers calling my name. And I didn't want to skate. The thing that I love most in this world. So what I did was I locked myself in my apartment. I taped up blankets to the windows. And I wouldn't leave. And my mom came. So my mom is just, just a tiny little person. And she came and she just sort of gently coaxed me out of my apartment and took me to the hospital. And I was admitted that night and stayed for months that first time. And I actually never put my skates on ever again after that day. And, you know, I was, I was no longer a normal young woman. I was a psychiatric patient. And the friends and family sort of, you know, came once or twice to visit me. And then and then they stopped coming, you know, some were afraid to come. And it just was a very difficult thing to face the, the loneliness that came along with this illness. And in hospital, they keep you um, busy during the day, most of the days. And in the evenings, I just, I would just stand at the unit door. And I would just wait, just, just hoping that somebody would come and visit me and nobody would have come. And, and the one I loved, he wrote me a letter saying, I can't love you anymore. It's just too hard. So I lost everything. I lost everything. And so began the years of hospitalizations, um, the years of different medications, the years of ECT. I had a fantastic doctor who tried everything. He would try everything, but nothing was working. You know, I would just sort of move through the hospital like a ghost. And everything was like a pale shade of gray. I felt no touch, I tasted no food, I heard no music, I did not experience one millisecond of joy. 
I would just sit in a chair staring at the wall and I could hear, I could hear that life was going on, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, I was just too lost to respond. And so this went on for many, many years. In 2001, so I'd been five years in hospital, I was standing at the front doors and it was winter and I live in Northern Alberta. So winter hits hard in Northern Alberta. And it had been snowing and snowing and snowing and snowing. And the morning that it stopped snowing, I always say it was snowing for six days and on the seventh day it stopped snowing, but that was sounding way too biblical. <laughs> but I was standing, uh, I, I was standing looking out the front doors of the hospital. It was early, so there was no tracks yet. And something in me said, write. And I had never been a writer, but I listened to this and I began I began to write and I would collect scraps of paper from around the hospital and pick up pens and stuff. And I would write these words down and then I'd hide them and um, under my in my closet or under my pillow. But I could feel that somehow this these connections to these words were pulling back into the world. And so I grabbed on and I grabbed on tight and something happened. I began to notice things again. So I started to notice like how the, the snow glows in the moonlight and the smell of fresh coffee and the sound of water running and uh, the, the, the way the candle flickered on the altar, like all these sensations had been lost to me for years. The world became, started to come alive again. And what I call that moment is hope. And would you like me to tell you the real miraculous thing that happened? So, we also found a combination of drugs that was working. Finally, finally, finally. Um, he, he, he mixed and matched and we finally found a combination. And then a really miraculous thing happened. A nurse discovered that I was writing. And Nurse Nurse was a, public, a published poet, a very well-known poet. And she asked me if she could take my poems home and type them up. And so I agreed. I agreed to this and she came back and she had them all neatly typed up and she pinned them on my bulletin board and she, she, for everybody to see, and she brought me pens and paper. So I didn't have to look around for pens and paper, but the thing was, she acknowledged me and she saw me and she heard me. And that was so important to be heard. For you, this is clearly a very important defining moment in your recovery and in your subsequent action to help others yes what made that so special for you to be seen to be seen hmm. do you think that's an experience that many patients as uh, experience in the course of their illness i do i do and um you know that that feeling like they're conversations going on around you and, and you're sort of in the middle of it but yeah i'm just thinking that 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 nurse did something really quite special in that she acknowledged you and she did it in a way that changed the whole trajectory uh, of your illness and presumably of your life subsequently my career yeah because she she made you feel different about yourself and she took the time to, to spend some time with me, yeah. And to see me as a whole person, not as an illness, not as schizoaffective disorder, which I've been diagnosed with, 
It wasn't that. I was a person. I was a whole person to her. You weren't a patient who needed to be medicated. You weren't somebody who was in therapy, whatever that is. You were a person, and she acknowledged you, and then subsequently she she brought to you the means whereby you could actually recover f- more fully. Yes, she did. She introduced a whole new life for me. Because I thought that after losing skating, I had nothing. And she brought me into the world of writing and the world of writers. Um, yeah. Where has this taken you in terms of, you know, the world as a writer and how have you used that means to contribute to, to patient care? Sure. So when, when I first started writing, I was simply writing to save, to save myself. I felt like I was losing myself and, it, and the words gave me hope. And so I didn't worry about any of the rules of writing. I didn't worry about any of that kind of stuff. I just simply allowed myself to write. And as the years sort of went by, I was able to sort of learn the craft of writing. It wasn't just about survival, it was about learning the craft, because there's a real craft to writing. And at some point, I, um, I decided that I would, I would start writing about what happened to me. And I started with um, Holmes about it. And then as I got sort of clearer, in my thinking and in my purpose and I began to write more prose about it so I started writing some some pieces where I was being really very honest about my illness because I think what we need to do is be honest about things and to make change and to talk about what's really going on we need to talk about what's really going on so it's led me to some great opportunities I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, a graduate program at the University of Iowa. I went for a semester there. I had many things published. But last summer, I wrote a, an article for the Globe and Mail, like Canada's largest newspaper. And so I wrote an article about living with schizoaffective disorder. And again, I just tried to be as honest yet delicate as I could, but I just wanted, I, I just wanted to, to be heard. And I thought that I was going to be just attacked on, on social media for it. I thought I was going to be called crazy. And that was a scary thing to do. It was, a, it was very scary to do it. I have to say there was a lot of sleepless nights as that was coming out into print. But what happened, what I didn't expect, was the outpouring of support that I received for for writing that article. And it led to being interviewed on a national radio program called White Coat Black Art. And again, I was terrified for that interview to come out because we even took it a bit further than than, um, the the written article had been. And uh, again, I mean, of course, there's going to be a little bit of, of that harsh stuff, you know, online. Talk a little bit about what you were saying that was so challenging to so many people. Well, I uh, t- I talked about I talked a lot about my healthcare workers that that worked with me, and I talked about and many of them have many caretakers have been so good. Please don't ever think that I think all is bad, but I I opened up about a situation that happened, and it was actually the first time 
I'd ever speak in publicly about it. So I ended up in hospital in Ontario, which is like all the way on the other side of the country. And those people who work in mental health know that these geographical changes sometimes happen when someone's not thinking too clearly and things like that. But I found myself in hospital in a smaller town and they stopped all my medications. They put me into the locked unit. There was two of us in the locked unit. Just this man who would just scream and bang his fists. And I, I was, it was the only time I was ever scared in all my hospitalizations. I, I was actually scared for my safety. And the nurses sort of sat behind glass um, between two, two big doors. And so one of the nurses came in and she had with her a student nurse. And she said, this one's a schizophrenic. And she pointed at me. And at that point, I just put my head down. And she started to read the intake notes about me to the, to the student. And what I can remember so clearly about that day was the student's blue shoes. Because I was looking down at his blue shoes. And to this day, I'll, I won't forget those blue shoes because I felt so humiliated. I felt like I was nothing. That I was just some patient that nobody cared anything about. And I began to cry. And she said, what are you crying about? And I said, can you please give me something for the anxiety? I was coming off all my medications. I've never uh, abused drugs. And she said to the student, she said, they're all drug seekers. They're just going to try to give drugs. Don't give in. Whatever you do, don't give in. And with that, they left. And I was just left sitting there, you know, contemplating my life. What, what, why, why stay alive, you know? Do you think this would have happened if you were in there for an appendicectomy? Say you had your appendix taken out and you had asked for some pain relief. Do you think similar things would have been said? I don't think so. Yeah, no. So there was something about the fact that you, you were labeled a schizophrenic patient. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was humiliating. Mm. I got back home and got back to my care team and I had a, a fantastic group of people who never gave up on me that worked with me so. so that was a very negative experience and you can see a lot of lessons there about about how we could change that simply by how we interact with people who are in hospital for whatever reason they're there yeah absolutely it doesn't require any policy change, does it? It doesn't require new, new funding. It doesn't require, and it requires you to be respectful of the person who is seated in front of you and who who is ill at the time. Who needs your help, you know? And you know, you can do amazing per- things to help that person. You just show them some support and encouragement, and you don't know how far that can go. That nurse that got me to the writing group. Um, we we actually I, I actually heard from her after I did the the white coat black art and she's retired now and but I'll never forget that that she did that for me. Um, what do you think that makes people like that so special? People like that nurse, as opposed to the one you were describing, who spoke about you as if you weren't actually in a room. Again, that she saw that there was more than just what was sitting in front of her and wanted wanted to help. She wanted to help. And she was willing to help. And she was willing to sort of move from that professional, personal kind of step, you know? Because she introduced me to a a writing instructor that she knew. So, 
Yeah. So she saw you as a person and she, and not as a patient. So the language becomes quite different, doesn't it? Once you start to redefine somebody, you, you don't see them as somebody taking up a bed in a hospital. You see them as somebody who needs help and who happens to be there for whatever reason. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Yeah. Amy, you've gone on to do some wonderful things and accomplish many wonderful things. Maybe you could say a little bit about some of what those things are. Let's see. I've, uh, I, I do some speaking for the Schizophrenia Society of Alberta. So I do the community education program. So I go out to, geez, police, paramedics, uh, universities, prisons, uh, hospitals, and I give them some education about schizophrenia and related illnesses. And I share my story. Because the sharing the story is the quickest way I know to cut through the stigma when you give a face to the illness. And when you tell the story of a person, empathy opens. And so I do that. And then in 2012, I was approached by the Schizophrenia Society and they had a, they were working on a contract with um, Alberta Health Services, which is our provincial health program. And they asked me if I would come in and be the first peer support worker on a clinical team. And I agreed. I agreed to do that. I have to say that I was terrified, terrified to do that. But I started reading about the efficacy of peer support and, and how it worked. And so I remember showing up for that first, oh God, team conference and sitting in the room and they're talking about all the, all the patients. And I thought, I have nothing to offer. But, but I was truly, truly wrong in that. And I had a lot to offer. So that, so I was with them till 2016. And so I'm back, I'm not with them anymore. But, you know, it started as a minimum wage contract position. And now I think there's 17 of them. And it is a salaried um, benefited. So people are, are making a livable wage, you know. This is such a part, an important part of this process is, is you move back into wellness and then you want to be able to sustain yourself and care for yourself and so a job like that really really is helpful for both sides right but the person they're treating and for the, the 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 peer support worker you know so I did that and right now I was just uh, awarded um, by the mayor of Edmonton the 2019 Ewan Nelson self-advocacy award I just received that last week and I also received an award um, it was called the Momentum 2019 Mental Health Leader Award. I received that last week too. It was quite the quite the week. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging, but I I'm I'm just so feel so grateful that I can do the work that I do. I have very beautiful loved ones who um who love me and care for me so that I can do the work that I've become to love to do. I also got to be a part of a really cool project called Fighting Normal, which is when an artist took some of my poems about my illness and made it into painting. And I had a, I had a little manuscript of all these poems about my illness. And a publisher asked for them. And he, he came to me and said, I, I'm, I, want to, I heard you have a manuscript. And when he saw it, he said, you should not publish this. You'll forever be known as mentally ill and not the poet that you are. And I was kind of, um, I felt that hurt. You know, it was such a slight. But this artist, Lori McFadden, she loved the poems. And so she made these beautiful pieces of art. And so 
we were we got a grant to do it. We were re- uh, represented by a gallery. And so her her paintings hung on the wall and then my text was printed on the wall beneath it. And it was fantastic. It was so much fun. And people came to us and they said, you know, this is me. This is my mother. This is my brother. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for giving voice to the experience of the inside of mental illness. So that's a few things I've <laughs> I've been up to lately. I, uh, yeah. Your summary there is excellent, in, and that is exactly how we feel about having you on the show, that you have given a voice to the people who have had a mental illness and demonstrated that by doing something really quite human, that nurse who encouraged you to write has changed the trajectory and has given you back to us in a way that you were able to contribute to so many other people. Uh, with with a similar condition yes she did a lot for me Um, so thank you for that but I do have one last question for you and it's really a question that I've been meaning to ask you almost since the interview started and that is did you ever go skating again I've actually never put my skates on again and you know I get I get asked that almost you know weekly and I'm inching towards it. I am. A lot of what is skating is um, how you hold your body over your blades. This is the you know what what skating is about. And unfortunately, I had gained quite a bit of weight on the on the medications that some of the medications. So I've always felt like I sort of lost my my stance on those skates. And and it also it hurts. It hurts. I love to skate, and the loss of that was. The grieving actually has taken years. I'm sorry I can't say that I've been skating, but there's an arena that I pass every morning when I'm on my way to work, and I always think, you know, they've got ice really early in the morning and nobody would be there. And there's something about being on the ice alone. And in in the winter when the ice is so hard and fast and you can hear the edge as you cut across the ice, there's something so intoxicating with that. And I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But I'm doing a lot of writing about it. I'm writing a memoir right now. So the ice is coming back to, to life. Yeah, so. On that note and that phrase, the ice is coming back to life, we will thank you for your interview. And I very much hope that you will come back and tell us that you've been on the ice. Oh, yeah. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design.